0: One of the things getting just at that idea of the bizarro world or like the evil world that's out there, one technique that I've found to be really effective is just thinking of a bad idea. That's my guest, Chris Butler,
1: with one example, and he'll tell us more about the power of bad ideas a little later, of how to break down cognitive biases and institutional thinking during ideation and product strategy work. Chris has a fantastic presentation, which I'll link to in the show notes, called Adversarial Product Management. And as soon as I saw it, I wanted to get him on the podcast to share his ideas. This is Nels Davis, and you're listening to the Secrets of Product Management podcast. This is episode number 107, and I'm very glad you're here. For notes on this show and many links, check out secretsofpm.com 107. Now, the term adversarial comes from a talk by Nobel Prize winning behavioral scientist Daniel Kahneman, and I'll put a link to that talk in the show notes as well, about the need to test our ideas against bias. You know, we all have these cognitive biases, and the worst of them is the one that tells us we don't have cognitive biases. And I'm not talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect, but something more insidious. It's called the blind spot bias, and it just means we cannot detect when our own biases are affecting our thinking. And of course, It's not just us product managers, but everyone we work with as well. Now, Chris is a product operations manager, meaning his job is working with the product management team at his company to improve their processes, tools, and effectiveness. In the talk and in this interview, he shares a lot of techniques he uses with his clients, the product managers in his organization, for compensating for and overcoming these biases. And that's where the adversarial techniques come in. There are various tools for creating adversarial situations. The first and most basic is to do work in a group, especially if you do it right. It's not that our biases cancel out necessarily, but they do often slant different directions. But there are other methods as well, and we go into that. In this wide-ranging interview, Chris Butler goes into a bunch of these. Now, we'll get to the interview with Chris in a minute. Before we get into that interview, though, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. Adil Berdai, the founder of Kalito, will be on the show in a few weeks. Kalito, if you aren't familiar with it, is a new tool for product managers. Adil and I connected over my interest in product management tools, and our conversation, the one that's coming in a few weeks, was a great drill down into PM tools and what they should do. And we also talked about Kalito as well, of course, his actual product. But the reason I'm mentioning this now is that there's a great, very low-risk introductory deal for Kaledo on AppSumo right now. I don't have any stake in the company or this deal, but I think it's worth looking at if you're interested in PM tools like I am, and the price is quite low. I asked Adil to give a 30-second blurb about Kalido.
0: Thank you, Nils. Kalido is an intelligent product management platform that allows you to manage the full product lifecycle from ideation to launch. And we built it with that end in mind to give you that flexibility. We are very excited to share this deal with you. We are up on AppSumo. So just go to AppSumo and search for Kalido. There is a lifetime deal with very generous user licenses tiers for lifetime, just one-time payment. So check it out. And we will be talking a little more in future episodes about why we built Kalido and how it could help you.
1: And if you're interested in learning more, you can find the listing on AppSumo. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. You'll hear more from a deal in a few weeks. Now let's get on with the interview with Chris Butler. I started out by asking about product operations and what it is and what he does. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. I'm really thrilled to have you here to learn more about both product operations and this fantastic idea you have in your video, adversarial product management, I'd love to have you share what product operations is as you do it, what you bring to that and how it's working.
0: Yeah, so I'm, I'm head of product operations for a group at Cognizant, which is a community of about 100 product managers and product analysts. And my my goal is really to PM the PM experience for them. And what that tends to mean is thinking about better ways for us to interact as a community, right? So I think of myself as kind of a steward of that community. It could mean how do we either create or destroy process that we have um, within the community? And it could also mean you know things as rudimentary as which tools will we use as a community. And so I think of it very much as people, process, and and technology, kind of the classic consultancy uh, pillars um, because we are a consultancy. I also use two-by-twos a lot uh, just because of the consultancy. But I I would say that, you know, what really ends up being valuable from the standpoint of product operations is, is this kind of refocusing back and forth between the individual, what is their experience within the product management community? You know, how included do they feel, How much do they feel like they can depend on the community to the idea of the community as a whole, right? Like how does everybody interact with each other, things like that. And and really my customer, if we were going to put it into the parlance of like, you know, product management, my customer is the product manager, right? Mm -hmm. The value that we end up creating is really for a high level leverage role, like product management. I help provide even more leverage on that role. Things like the customer journey ends up being the life cycle of someone being recruited, to joining, to all the things that end up happening while you're in the community, like feedback mechanisms, performance evaluation, promotion, enablement, training, any of those things, right? All the way to kind of offboarding and how do we make sure we don't lose knowledge when people are leaving the community. And so that that's kind of that, that customer life cycle. Um, with, when we think about the idea of like metrics, I tend to look an awful lot at metrics that are similar to community-based metrics. So that ends up being things like engagement, which mm-hmm. I think is I have like a love-hate relationship with with engagement metrics just because it can create the wrong type of effects. But what you want to counterbalance those things with usually tend to be aspects like uh the feeling of inclusion, mm-hmm. right? A feeling and, and not and not the idea of like we have a high percentage of that, but like looking at the cases where people really don't feel included, right? So you're actually going after the exceptions rather than the 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 average. I think that this is something that's still kind of being figured out within the product operations world and, mm-hmm. and and it's fairly new right like operations as a as a role where you really think about the process has usually been more about efficiency and right. tended to have more of a financial background around it. But when it came to product management, of course product managers are going to product manage. And so you know we we try to think about what is what is actually the the higher level things that we're trying to get at and I, I think it's more like efficacy. Right Rather than efficiency, and so I, I think there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the product operations world, and there's definitely like you know big product management people <laughs> like Marty Kagan and Melissa Perry arguing about this stuff too, which I think says that there's there's going to be more and more focus on this type of role, and I think it's going to become more and more important for a lot of uh, product management groups is mm-hmm. to have a product operations role. so what about the impact on and this
1: is I'm assuming it's pretty hard to measure the impact on the products themselves mm-hmm. through mm-hmm improving these things that you mentioned with the product managers, yeah. right? Do you have a sense of that and how to measure that?
0: No, I think it's really hard, right? Like I, I think if we over-focus on customer-centric metrics, one of the things I tell a lot of product operations people and and even internally to the group is that my customer is not the customer, right? In our case, that would be like a client of, of Cognizant. But a lot of people, I think, mistake the customer of their, their organization as their main customer. And I think what ends up happening there is it, when a product operations person focuses on that, they end up just doing regular product management work. And that's that's actually something we want to avoid because we're supposed to be there as someone looking from slightly outside, not completely detached, but slightly outside of the rest of the product management organization to help improve it. I did a piece with Product-Led Alliance uh, in their product operations blog, essentially, about how when we mistake who our customer is, the product operations team ends up starting to do a lot of bullshit work and they'll do the work that the product managers actually don't want to do. (laughs) And um, so I think that's where like, if we mistaken our customer as a product ops person for the the end customer, I think we get into trouble, but I think there is like a really valuable thing to say, how do we know that we're doing a better job here? The thing I do actually reference a lot is that um, there was a study from McKinsey, I think in 2000, it was actually earlier, 2021, where they looked at what were the companies that had the best business velocity and they don't, and we're not using the term velocity here, like story point velocity within an agile team or something like that. But, but this idea of like, how do they get to the right solution faster? Mm -hmm. And one of the three things that was there was product management practice. And so for me, I think if we believe that there is that effect, then being hyper-focused on how well do product managers feel they're doing their job and then how well are they actually doing their job, I think is really Mm -hmm. important. Now, I also want to say that maybe, you know, the first customer is really the product managers. The second customer is probably the other teams that product managers work with, right? So how do we form the right types of alignment with like engineering or design or whatever? And then the third is actually management, (laughs) right? Um, Because what we don't want product operations to be is to be some way to like turn the screws on PMs. And so a lot of the time my job is to actually, you know, a manager will come to me, like my, my manager, the VP of product management will say something like, I want like a status report, and I'll say, "Well, why do you want that status report? (laughs) And what do you really want from this in some way that is meaningful? That is not just people, you know, entering a bunch of stuff into a document on a regular basis. No one's reading it, and it provides no value. What's the problem you're trying to solve here? Exactly right. Exactly right. That's why I keep on kind of like thinking about this prioritization. Is that if I get a request from, say, a manager of the team or another part of the organization, I then look at it and say, one, what are we trying to solve for them? And then two, how does that impact the product management team? Right. And that's how we then, I think, come up with things that are much better. The story I tell a lot in, in my product ops like talks is about this council meeting that, you know, took like people two hours to pare- prepare this slide deck for like a 30 minute meeting. And you could only basically read the slide deck in the 30 minute meeting. But what we were really trying to do is trying to help those product managers that were on a client's project with the challenges that they had. And then the secondary things were like getting status and then understanding like early escalations and things Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. And so we basically asynced those other goals of that meeting and just really focused it like, kind of like a mastermind group where we ended up meeting each other, right? Right. Is that type of mastermind like approach I think is really valuable when we're there to listen to that product manager and it's not a, hey, you have to like prove that you're doing a good job to the management team, right? Right. And it's a complete, turnaround of this meeting where people like love this meeting now and it actually really helps I think allow for training in the job which is another thing I think is really important is going off for training I don't think really works right or using learning management systems things like that so Mm -hmm. I really try to get people to actually apply training in context. And there's a bunch of things I've been doing around something called decision forcing cases, but that's maybe a, I can, I can, we can post a link to that. But that idea of like, how do we do a better job of training, I think is a really important part of product operations, including, and, and I think this gets to decision-making, right. Which that's is true. one of the key things that product managers do. I agree. And I,
1: as you mentioned, Chris, I think there's a lot of different topics that we could Absolutely. have a podcast episode about. Adversarial product management is the one we're going to talk about today, is yeah, just one of many interesting topics that you talk about in your in your writing I, and your and your talks. Thank you.
0: Yeah. It's 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 hard for me to focus in on one thing. I think there's so many different things that are out there that product managers need to be thinking about. And I, I'm always kind of trying to push that limit, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I think there's there's lots of things that we can learn. And I think a lot of my, what I bring to this is really this idea of integrative interdiscipline type of thinking, talking about like say adversarial product management, that's something that really came from seeing that good decision-making is something that a lot of other fields deal with. In particular, when we look at places like cybersecurity, the idea of military, there's a bunch of places where there's someone else that's trying to do something to you and you have to in some way either protect yourself or counter or something like that. I think they end up practicing a lot of these things that that we'll talk about today about adversarial product management but it's it's essentially how do you do a better job of like attacking your own biases and attacking mm-hmm. your own assumptions right. that are incorrect in some way so it, in a sense in adversarial product management
1: the enemy that's attacking you is your own biases <laughs> and things like that maybe that's a way to think about yeah,
0: it exactly. yeah exactly exactly right and and it's not like you know i think one one way i kind of when i first started looking at things like red teaming is is one of the places that this comes from which is mm-hmm. essentially an internal team will pretend to be the enemy right. to attack you, right? Yeah. And this, this this comes from, a lot of people think it comes from like the USSR versus US, but it's actually from the Prussian wars where, <laughs> <laughs> and so it, can go, it goes way back, this way idea back. of like red teaming way and back. blue versus red and everything like that. But, but, this, but this idea is that like, unless you try to think like your opponent, you're going to just do the same attacks on yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. now when you try to now apply this to something like product management, I think a lot of people end up thinking, well, it's actually customers that are are, are the red team. That's not the case. I, I just want to be very clear. Like to your point, the biggest enemy you have are your, your current assumptions that are incorrect in some way. And right. it's incredibly hard to know which assumptions those things are, right? Yes. That's the hardest part.
1: Yeah. You've broached the subject already, adversarial product management. Why don't you give a little bit more of an explanation of, of what you mean by that? what does adversarial mean in this context? We've sort of touched on that. Yeah. And we'll get into some discussions about how to do it and why it works. Adversarial
0: is really about that there's two sides to something and okay. that those two sides end up creating some type of either tension or in the worst cases, violence, that causes the two sides to be different in some way, right? And so this, there's a phrase in um, like red teaming circles, which is like steel sharpens steel. And I think it's actually Bruce Lee that ended up saying it, and it, it <laughs> may be like earlier than that. The quote that I really like is that no plan ever survives contact with the enemy. Right. Um, and Mike Tyson has a version of that, which is that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And right. and so this is the thing that like we come up with all these plans, we come up with all these PRDs, we come up with all of these like things where we think that if we just think hard enough about something, that we'll get it right. Mm-hmm. But the reality is once we start to actually release it into the world there's a lot of ways we get things wrong. There's all these biases that I I like to talk about inside of the adversarial world that we're trying to solve are things like groupthink, lack of diversity, um, this idea of being certain, which is actually an emotion, not a rational thought. There's a bunch of things that end up getting in there um, that I think are really interesting. You know, even even this idea of like, I, I'm always going to mispronounce this, but like the Einstein effect, which is that once you start to have a preconception about something, it kind of leads you down a path. It's almost like an anchoring bias towards one way sure, of doing something, sure. yeah. right? So there's all these biases, including the blind spot bias, which is my favorite bias because it's that you don't know how you are being biased right now, because right. It would not be a bias if you knew what was going on. And so what I kind of think about is how do we do a better job of finding these adversarial moments where it can actually help improve our thinking in some way. Everybody has to put things into like a pyramid because I think it's like, as we get, we get started, it gets broader and broader. I I think I'm using pyramid in the wrong way as well, because I'm using it like from the top to the bottom. Um, But I I think it's really like a couple key things. One is what are techniques you can use that help you with your own thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I do a lot is like, if, you know, even just the idea of like in writing, reading out loud, your writing puts exactly. you in a different point that you can now understand your writing in a different way. Like, so, so it's just like things like that, where you're trying to, it's very hard, but you're trying to get outside of yourself, right? right. Then you have your Ch- team. changing
1: the, the modalities. I've, I've called that I have, cause I have podcasts about that exact technique, yeah.
0: right? Exactly. The value of talking out loud. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and so like, there's things you can do to kind of help yourself right? And, and there's a bunch of stuff that's there. Then there's your team. So how you create your team, how you set up what different people's responsibilities are, mm-hmm. how you do things like um, consent over consensus, which I think is a really important topic about like how you trust in your teams. And then how do you set up opportunities for people to disagree with each other and sure. to actually have like productive arguments, right? And so, that, and then the next one is a lot of the time we'll do things like customer research. Customer research is how do we now do a better job of understanding. What, what our preconceptions are about our customers. And then the last one is competitive analysis is, is another layer in there. I honestly, most of the time for most product managers, it's not like you're actually competitive against another company. It's more about your customer just doesn't care about you, right? Like that's that's the more likely thing that's going to happen. And so that's why I focus in on the customer one. But there is this idea that like, if you're Uber and the other person's Lyft, what are these things? Or if you're like Google versus like Amazon or Facebook, there's these huge things that are basically being fought through like little weird proxy wars, right? right. Um, and, and so I think there's something interesting about that as well from a like a com- competitive landscape uh, point of view as well. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. And then the last one, by the way, is just the universe itself. And that's where I think like really interesting patterns around randomness come into this world. Doing a better job of being adversarial actually requires you to think differently than you do. And I th- a way to do that is to use randomness. Right. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting part of this topic too.
1: Yeah. So one thing that you you mentioned and it made me think about is one of the things when you have an adversary, they're looking for weaknesses all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And cognitive biases, as you talked about and all these different things, they're kind of a type of weakness. Yeah. That the the world will exploit. Absolutely. If you're a product manager and you don't do something to manage them is is one way that I kind of think about it as well. It's really interesting and it as you lay it out, it's like, oh yeah, I can see how those things happen yeah. right and they've happened to me obviously and they've happened to all of us
0: Absolutely. So now
1: the question becomes okay what do we do about that right what are some tools that we can bring to say okay we're going to step into this kind of war game red blue red versus blue game of yeah. product management and try to outthink our opponent which is ourselves. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so you're, you're like, it's, it's one of those movies where like the person gets the evil clone of themselves and they have to now fight themselves. It's, it's always impossible because you throw the same punches. That's right. right. Yeah, <laughs> <So>, exactly. <laughs> one of the things maybe getting just at that idea of the like the bizarro world or like the evil world that's out there. One technique that I've found to be really effective is just thinking of a bad idea. And so I use this in a lot of different places. One is like individually, but I think also when we're doing like ideation within a team, Mm -hmm, trying mm -hmm. to come up with like a bunch of ideas and like divergent thinking type of stuff. Um, Coming up with a bad idea is really interesting because there's a lot of different things that we think inside of our head that means good. And it's actually a bunch of interlocking or like, it's like a million different dimensions that we're thinking about at once that could be like ethical. It could be ROI. It could be in the product management world. It's like, you know, how much does a customer want this versus the business versus can we build this, you know, feasibility? There's, there's like a million things. And it's not just a Venn diagram. I hate Venn diagrams to describe what we do. I think it's something we should stop doing. I keep on seeing for product operations, there's like a million Venn diagrams as well. This is a Venn diagram free zone while we talk about this. Okay. But but there's like a million dimensions that mean good, right? Right. That's why it gets so complicated when people do ideation around good and then you do a convergent activity to like dot vote to what is good. is really interesting because people have very different dimensions about what is good as well right? between individuals. But I think the thing I want to exploit here with the bad idea is that now taking the opposite of what is good is bad is a million different dimensions that are bad, sure, right? Sure. And a few of those are wrong. We just don't know which ones, right? <laughs> and so what you end up doing is you end up basically taking the opposite of what you think is good, but then you take a moment to look at the bad ideas. And yeah, a lot of them are garbage and actually mm-hmm. are probably bad for people in general, right? Like right, right, um, right. But then you come up with like a couple ideas where it's like, well, if I relaxed this assumption, it would be okay. And in this talk, which I think like, you know, I kind of do, I, I like doing things that seem scary and like improv inside of these uh, these talks I do. And so in that talk, right, like I asked people, I want everybody to ideate what are bad ideas for what we could do for like a meetup, right? right. And so everybody's there at a meetup and they're like, oh, well, it, you could not advertise it at all. And I'd be like, well, yeah, that's true. I could, I I would not advertise at all, but maybe that would be valuable if I was trying to do something that was really exclusive. Right. Right. And I wanted to build like word of mouth around it, or like, I could be really rude to people. Right. Like that would be a bad idea. But then like, I I, I bring up, like, I I don't know why I brought up like Dick's last resort, which is this like restaurant chain where basically the waiters are there to like offend you the entire time. Right. But there's like a lot of reasons why it it might've been part of the shtick that I'm doing. in that meeting, Right. Like, like it's, it's how do you deal with rude people as a meetup or something like that, right? right? Um, and so that bad idea has some good in it. It's just that sometimes we, we overthink what is good, whereas we should be like considering what we think is bad and may not actually be that bad. Yeah. right. It's interesting because
1: I talk about a technique that I use, which is a little different. I'm a very bad designer. I just know this, I'm not good at designing UIs. But <laughs> I always put a UI design when I write a feature you know, when I write up a feature, I put a UI design in, I know in advance, it's going to be bad. Yeah. Right. And so it does a couple of things. One is it sort of says, anybody looking at it can say, here's a lot of things I can see that can make Absolutely. this better. Right. Yeah. And of course, it does. My goal is not to make it is not for it to actually be That's right. as terrible as it could be. But to say, here's a fundamental thing that seems like a fixed point. Right. Yeah. But knowing that, well, and it's also there's a whole yeah. perfection aspect, right? Product Absolutely. managers have to, we're perfectionists. Yes, it's our nature, and so putting things out there that you know are bra- are bad. It's, it, I think that's another potential benefit Absolutely. of your exercise, right? And
0: and let's take this even to its like extreme, right? Like there's a, there's a, a group of people that have done you know this idea of like discursive design is basically or the idea around futurism and speculative futures end up usually taking the form of here's a really horrible product we built that would make sense in a world that could happen right? Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and same thing with like, uh, the, what's come out of this discursive design thing is, is something called provocative prototyping, or prototyping, which I again, I hate the fact that people are <laughs> trying to create new terms around this. Um, but it's essentially that you create the worst possible prototype, and you show yep. it to a customer. Sure. And inside of that, like, what the, the example they gave in this article was, they were doing like a healthcare site, and they made it like with crazy colors, and they used comic sans, and they just made it like really ugly. Um, and people barely noticed that, Right? like They didn't care what it looked like. They cared they could not actually like enter in a claim in a way right. that made sense to them. Yeah, and so yeah. I think what that tells you in that case is that you have all the wrong conceptions about basically what you should be perfecting, right? Yeah. You should not be not not perfecting the visualness of this website because people don't care about the aesthetic they know it's going to be bad. Or yeah. at least the competitive landscape is that it, everybody's bad in this case. Yeah. So if you can just be like way better at the user experience, you're going to be differentiated in ways that you can't expect. So so that's what I'm saying is I think you can take this actually to its extreme and use it as a process in in the way that you do like things like user research. Yeah, I always use
1: Craigslist as an example of that. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Horrible UI by any design standards, Yeah, but a, a startup that crushed Absolutely. industries and, right. and mints money basically, so.
0: Absolutely, well, and that's the thing is that people thought, at least when they were coming up, right, it's like, well, newspapers are the thing that everybody reads. So who's going to go to the web to do this, right? But all the different things that they did around business model, around like the way that they got out of the way of people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they just allowed people to do whatever crazy thing they wanted to do there, basically, which also got them in trouble a lot. Um, But like, you know, I, I think, that's the thing that, you know, why, why can't we build something that is super bare bones that just like allows people to just connect with each other. That's literally what that that was there for nothing else. Yeah. So I, I totally think that this idea of like a bad idea, just thinking about bad ideas, using bad ideas inside of your work, I think is a really great way to do that. Cool. Do you have any recommendations for how to come up with bad ideas? Honestly, if you just ask people to come up with a bad idea, they'll, they'll be, they'll be very inclined to do it. People are, you know, they, they know what is a good and a bad idea. And, but I use it a lot during, like, if I'm doing crazy eight sketching, which is where you write, you sketch eight ideas in eight minutes Mm -hmm. with the team. And that's like usually interfaces or experiences, even the idea of just coming up with ideas where you come up with like one, you know, the idea of private ideation using different rounds of private ideation, where one of the rounds you actually say, I want everybody to come up with as many bad ideas as possible. Uh There's like something called dominant logic theory, which it's from management science in like the eighties. And it's essentially that you have this mental model or set of assumptions about the world that as you become successful, you keep using those over and over, but it's, it's maladaptive to whatever your future considerations need to be. Mm -hmm. And so the hard part is coming up with what are your assumptions, right? And then you flip those. And so I think like David J. Bland and his assumption mapping, I think is maybe a good way to kind of do a bunch of ideation around what are the important assumptions that we have. And you can take almost every one of those things that you end up ideating about assumptions that are important, but you have very little knowledge about right, which or, or evidence, and actually flipping them on their head and saying, what would be a bad version of this? Sure, and then sure. considering it, right? Yeah. So I think it, it can be used in all of these different places that we end up doing ideation and kind of consideration of what we need to do next, basically. Yeah. So a lot of what you talk about
1: in the adversarial product management video and, and just now is about things that you can do in groups. And those are very exciting. And I, I work in a big group of product managers. That's my, my day job. But a lot of I have in the past been the only product manager or one of an you know two or three how do some of these apply to individuals people who are like the product manager or one of two yeah. for
0: example within that world maybe this is the second big thing right which is trying to find sparring partners within your sure. world and so that could be other product managers one i think as a product ops person part of my job is to cr- like create more reasons for product managers to be in the same room together right um and a lot of the time that could be like feedback mechanisms product critiques, like there's a bunch of mechanisms that are there. Um, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to find people that will push on your thinking yep. in some way. And so I think a lot of the time it, it ends up being like, I think this relationship between like product management and engineering and product management and design, I think are great places to really go after that. Like, how do you find a sparring partner? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and when I say sparring partner, I think it's really important to to point to the way that like, say martial arts or martial sport thinks about sparring partners is that it should hurt a little bit. But it shouldn't injure you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so it stings. Yeah, exactly. And, and all good feedback, by the way, like does sting. Like if, if the feedback doesn't impact you in some way, like it's probably not real feedback. And so, you know, there's a great book that I, I reference uh, a lot of the time around feedback, which is Thank You for the Feedback. It's a really great book. And about a third of it is How Do You Give Good Feedback? Which is important. There's like a good way to give people feedback, like how timely it is, talking about the event, not them. There's a bunch of things that you start to do where, like in a sparring kind of like concept, it's, you're, you're in that fight right then, but it's not about us as individuals. Like, like we, you know, and I I used to do like Muay Thai kickboxing and jujitsu and stuff like that, and was really into that type of stuff. And we would beat each other up a lot. And my instructors would beat me up a lot. And, but at the end we were like friends. Right. Right. And so there's something about like, how do you, how do you really do that well? But then the last two thirds of that book is essentially how should you take feedback? Because not everybody's going to be able to give it to you in the way that you need it. And so I think like some of the things there are how do we actually think about what we use from this information right because some information we get from people is helpful and we agree with and we want to change but there's other times that we're just like yeah you know what I thank you for your view right thank you for your feedback but I'm not going to do anything about it like that's basically like what you, so so I think like in this world of like sparring we have to be get better about thinking for ourselves like what is it that we need from these types of things and so yeah. I think this gets into not only how do you build the right type of meetings to be able to have disagreements, but also the right types of relationships inside the organization where you can have tension. Um, Mark Abraham like talks about this in his book around, you know, product management is about tension and I'm quoted in there a couple of times as well. So I'm not just pitching his book or anything, but I do think the, the, the idea, like in the idea of like a team topology, right. For product management. Mm -hmm. um, This is the reason why it's so important to not only like think very hard like about like what each product manager should do in a product team but also how should we change that over time like right? cuz like conway's law uh, which is a paper from the 50s is still valuable from the standpoint that you ship your org chart essentially to your customer the the part that i think a lot of people skip in that that paper as well is that like you should also be reorging whenever you're trying to change your product right. so like if you're updating so, your product you should change the way your org works and so i think this gets to product managers that you know, for a while product management was like, okay, here's the web person and here's the mobile person. Yeah. Right. But that's bad because you then end up creating a tension between channels, which you don't want, which means like different people have different language and they have different experiences and there's different ways to do things. I think the better way to, to focus this nowadays is more like around persona or job to be done or experience or something like that. Sure. You still then have tensions between these things. And so anyways, that's all I'm saying is like, I think part of this point around good sparring partners is that you want to build the right types of tensions as well. And, and that's why like the trifecta or the balanced team of like product management design and uh, like engineering is a tension between three very different things. right? Right. And it's design is kind of like, how is this experience work? How does the person see it and feel it? Right. The engineering is like, how maintainable is this over time? Like how, how much can we actually do what we need to do? And then product is like, Ideally, how are we connecting this to other things like business and safety and security and all these other things that should be there, right? Sure. So I think that's like a really important aspect of that, like sparring partner attention is is how do we find these things and then create healthy relationships that are like that. That makes a lot of sense. And then, so you've talked a lot about different
1: techniques and again, some of these group things and and in your talk, you also talk about randomization yeah, yeah you, you mentioned earlier. So talk about some tools for randomization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think randomization is is really interesting because randomization doesn't care what you think or feel, right? <laughs> like it doesn't care at all. And and so what you can do is like just even this idea of uh, one of the things I do a lot, and I'm holding up like a deck of cards right now, which are called oblique strategies, right? Um, and so these are by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt, where Brian Eno is like a very famous like music producer, sure. right, and designer. He's kind of like he's kind of an idol to me and like as a polymath and what he does. And he's just like a really impressive person. But what this is, is basically like 60 different provocations. Can you that... read, out,
1: read out a couple? Just yeah, here the we audience go. Here. Um, Cause they're so pretty, like, some of them are pretty wacky.
0: <laughs> they are. Well, so this started out as like a piece of paper he had with like 15 provocations. Mm-hmm. And David Bowie was like, and his, his band was like, I don't know what to do right now. I feel like a block in music. He like read off one of these provocations and have them do that. Right. Yeah. So one yeah. of them is like, ask your body which is super high level right or listen to the quiet voice or only one element of each kind or tidy up right and so all these things are like weird provocations when trying to now align it with what you're tr- you're trying to do right sure. and and i think that's why humans are so interesting is that randomness by itself is just garbage right static mm-hmm. that's the truly random signal but what we're trying to do is we're trying to take something that is like a random signal and then interpret it through the human mind that then finds meaning in something and then turns that into something that is maybe higher variance thinking than we would have done otherwise. Right. right? And, um, I mean, I actually take this a book that I recommend to a lot of product managers. It doesn't seem like a product management book, but it really is why greatness cannot be planned. And I think about this book a lot because it's really, really good about talking about the uncertainty of the world. But I think the part that's really interesting about it is it's actually like a book about, about like machine learning papers, um, where they created something called pick reader, where, Basically used, a computer would generate um, a, through an algorithm, like an image, and they would create a field of these. And then a human being on a website would say which one they liked the most, right? right. Again, no, uh, the, it was just like good, right? Whatever that means to that yeah. person. And they would do this and they do a genetic algorithm that would then evolve over time. And after thousands of evolutions, it turned into like pictures of skulls and butterflies and like stuff that you would have never imagined to happen. But it was through this idea of like randomness and then the human mind interpreting that randomness, Right. right. I have like another deck of cards which are called the like user centric questions by Try Triggers, and I've actually created a deck with them by the way. So I have written a deck of cards uh, for machine learning projects, which are basically these the Try Trigger d- decks are kind of like sixty questions you'd want to ask um, about like a user centric project, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't have time to ask all 60 of those questions for every decision you're making right you just suddenly pull out like five of these cards and consider them you've now expanded what you've considered overall Mm -hmm. and I've even gone as far as like the idea of like tarot decks and stuff like that so um, one of the party tricks I do at like conferences is I'll do like a product reading for someone and I'll use the cross format of the tarot cards which is five cards and you know, again, it takes a little bit of like improv and maybe like, I'm not a mentalist or anything like that, but, but it requires you to be a bit of a charlatan to be able to do this um, in reading the cards, but asking them questions like, well, so what does this mean to you, right. right? And it gets into this world of like, well, I'm interpreting things right now this way, but if I reinterpret them through this other lens, right, it, it means that I think of something differently. And yeah. so anyways, there's lots of, I, I use decks of cards. I use dice mostly just for like to randomize orders of things and stuff like that. What you can really do is the the way that you would use this in like a day-to-day practice is in say divergent activity. Um, And I have a whole other talk, by the way, about randomness where I even randomize the sections that I do the talking (laughs) um, and then have it like a timer go off every randomly four to six minutes where I have to draw a random card to now like adapt that to the the thing I'm talking about that moment. So it's very like nerve wracking presentation for me, at least, but people think it's interesting. Is this like idea of like divergent activity Is if we're coming, trying to come up with a bunch of ideas, Mm -hmm. right? Like, like crazy eights again, where we're doing eight sketches in eight minutes. I'll draw like one of these oblique strategy cards per uh, frame of that crazy eight. Mm -hmm. And so, what you end up getting is like, yeah, again, it's hard to understand what some of these cards would mean in this context, but it really, it really does increase the variance of ideas that you end up getting out of it. Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, You mentioned a number of things in the talk as well, like uh, different ways of uh, well like the pre-mortem and things like oh, that. Oh yeah. How do how does that does that fit into these categories of um bad I mean in some sense it's kind of bad ideas, right? Yeah, it is.
0: Yeah. It's taking the it's it's basically trying to look at what is going to go wrong and what you expect to go wrong rather than good. Um so I think it's also in this idea of like adding tension or like your sparring partner is your your past experience that knows that things are going to go wrong. So I, I think that's like how it's related, but I do love pre-mortems because People are very creative when it comes to the way that things will go wrong, right? right? And they, we all have like this embodied experience, which is very intuition based. I think, especially for product managers, it ends up being a lot about intuition. And I think that's, that's what we call like tacit knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what pre-mortems really tap into is tacit knowledge in a way that usually we cannot explain, right? So right. Yeah. if yeah. you, if I were to just ask you, give me all the different reasons that just like any project could go wrong. And you give me like a few, Mm-hmm. right but it's not contextualized to this particular project once you contextualize it to this project this is where we get into like the world of naturalistic decision making and people like Gary Klein that have studied this for like decades of like how do firefighters they will they will say when they're in a building they have like an esp about what's going on with that building mm-hmm. And that ESP is actually tacit knowledge that they're tapping into around like experience prototypes and all these like really hard to understand things. But when you contextualize it all of a sudden, it snaps into place that it's like, well, I'm going to look for these key signals. I'm going to ignore all this other stuff, right? And the premortem is really great about that because you're so focused on like, okay, well, we know this is a project in this industry, building this type of thing with this team that's here right now, Mm -hmm. these people Mm -hmm. that I may have worked with or not worked with. And here's all the things I know that are suddenly like going off in my head that I know are going to go wrong, right? Right. And a lot of them are right, by the way. Like (laughs) every time I've done a pre-mortem, almost the top like three to five items usually have come to happen. It's just that we maybe did a better job of like handling it than we would have previously. Mm -hmm. I think that's where pre-mortems are like an amazing tool for that. Yeah, Uh, I I love
1: the idea of pre-mortems. As as you know, I try to end this podcast with three things you can start doing today, but we've really gone over those. Um, so summarizing the, think of a bad idea, finding sparring partners and using randomization, any other thoughts you want to add on to the, any, like you mentioned cards as a way to do randomization, which is, which is fantastic. And random ordering of things and timers and things and
0: any other fun, random things. Using these types of tools can be a little hard, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, it, because I think people will see them as trivial sometimes. So I think there's like this this thing about doing the hidden randomness, right? Which is sometimes I'll just, when I'm by myself, like I'll, I have like a bunch of these decks of cards, right? Like mm-hmm. I think the Try Triggers user-centric deck is incredibly appropriate for product managers. I think the Oblique Strategies deck, you don't have to buy this is like a $60 deck that I use that's like a third edition or something like that, but they have a 99 cent app for your phone and there's a website that just has it for free, right? right? So you can just use this. One of the things I've done occasionally is I'll start reading through my spec and then I'll just like pull a card and then I'll see how do I reinterpret like the user-centric thing on this part of the spec, right? Mm Or if I'm in the middle of a meeting and because we're all in Zoom right now, at least for the time being, like you can you can be pulling cards as much as you want and no one will see that. And you'll just look like a genius asking these like crazy questions that seem very meaningful in some way. That's, that's the way that I, I think like if we're just going to boil it down to this idea of randomness and, and just doing it, it's something you can do by yourself because I think you do have to have a lot of trust in the team to be able to be like really open about this type of thing because it does look very trivial, right? Like yeah. it looks like I'm just doing something that's like, You know, we want to find the right thing first. We got to think about this really hard, but you're pulling out these card decks and you're making it seem like, you know, the world is uncertain. And my argument is that whatever we feel certain about is probably wrong at some point. Sure. Right. And so that's, I think just like distrusting our, our, our own selves is one of those things that product managers do better. I think as you gain more and more experience, you distrust yourself further and further, which, which I think also creates a lot of ideally good things, right? Like if you take it from the standpoint that the world is uncertain, and that everybody's just trying to deal with uncertainty and that product mm-hmm. managers are there to try to help people deal with uncertainty, you become much more caring and empathetic to your teammates because it's like, they're also scared about all of right. this uncertainty and ambiguity. And so how do we do a better job? They them? may not even They may not even know it. That's right. And they may not even know it. If you can manage
1: that for them, when I talk about improving your presentations, it's the same kind of thing. If you're taking care of the audience-
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And they don't even know it, but their subconscious says, oh, I love that person. That's a really big win and, and the same kind of thing, right? right? If you're if you're helping your team that's right be more comfortable without them even knowing that necessarily that they're uncomfortable, it, it can be really helpful.
0: And I think that the the other side of that is that we could also like punish people when they make a mistake, right? And that causes the opposite effect of what we want. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and so I think that's why when I think about the product mindset, I think it's really about embracing or harnessing uncertainty, and yeah. that's why all of this adversarial stuff is not meant to be mean. And and this is why, like, I have not done as much work around the adversarial thing, because it sounds kind of like, like angry. But
1: the reality
0: is, is like, we need to be constantly training to be better at dealing with uncertainty. And I think the adversarial models that we end up using through, like, yeah, the the things like uh, bad ideas, tension, and randomness, and, and there's a bunch of others, like constantly reframing, like there's a bunch of things that you can do in there that I think really help. But but I think it creates a better team dynamic because you you are aware that things are uncertainty uncertain in some way. Mm-hmm. And so how do we do a better job together rather than blaming each other for making mistakes that are just going to happen, right? How do we increase decision like fitness with the idea that even if we made the most perfect decision ever, something random in the world could just like wreak havoc on it at any moment. Yeah. And so I think this stance, I think, ends up creating a much better team dynamic, dynamic as well.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's it's fantastic, and there's so many interesting sort of metaphorical ways of th- of approaching this as well, right? A lot of the stuff that I've talked about on this podcast, this is just perf- perfectly aligns. Totally, and I know all of the things you talk. I mean, everything. It's all makes a network, right? That yes. that is reinforcing. Um, and, That's right. You know, one thing I do say to people, like on their resumes, if they if they are looking for a product management job, but their last title was product was project manager, but they did right. product management say you're a product manager, right? I'm suggesting the same thing to you. Maybe you change adversarial
0: product management to uncertainty training. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, that's a great idea. I need to do a better job of branding all this stuff. (laughs) That branding is not my expertise, right? But I think that's where this connects with product ops too, right? Is is a lot of my job. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this is that helping product managers be better at their jobs is something that I really love and like really focus on. And so product operations, there are some things that are just, very standard kind of we need to have you know for whatever reason this this thing is causing a problem with our our group and so we need a template right like something simple like that right yeah this idea of doing a better job of creating healthy tension allowing for more explore exploratory meetings and thinking and feedback sessions is also our job and yes. to create that space right and and so I think that's that's where I think a lot of not only product ops people but I think you know, when, when the reason why I got into product ops is because I was basically doing product ops when I was a product leader. It's just that I was not having my incentives aligned with that. My incentives were aligned with the product, not with the people, yes, right? Yeah. And so that's why I kind of moved into this realm of product operations, is I, I enjoy that that kind of alignment better. Um, and so I think every product leader does this. It's just that they probably don't spend as much time as they should on it. Exactly.
1: Yeah, that's a good good closing comment, Chris. Well, this has been so interesting. I love these ideas Chris and all the different ideas that you I mean again maybe we even make a regular thing where you come and tell us about some new wild thing that you're working on or thinking about absolutely Um, I think that would be a lot of fun for for me and for the audience I would love that yeah please great to have you on and uh, I will put links to as many things as Chris mentioned (laughs) as I can find all the cards and um, certainly the videos that you've mentioned I'd love to put the video, the link to the random video that you mentioned. If yes, you that's online. And um, yeah, this event. If, if people wanted to learn more or reach out to you, any yeah. quick notes on that?
0: The places that you want to follow my content is going to be on Medium or uh, YouTube. And so we'll include those links. Um, but then if you want to connect with me, I mean, feel free to just use LinkedIn. I'm very active there. I post a lot of my stuff there and I'm, I'm more than happy to connect with people. Um, and so Uh, yeah, please just get in touch with me. I'm, I'm happy. I always love to hear about other people's problems too. So like, don't, don't ever feel like it's a burden to me. Learning about other people's problems is, is really, really valuable. So, well, this has been great, Chris. Thanks again for joining. Good luck on your future
1: endeavors. And, and I can't wait to see more videos and all that kind of stuff. They're so good.
0: And to see you in the mastermind occasionally. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the time today. And I, I really you know, hope that uh, your audience gets some, some interesting ideas out of this. So thank you so much for including me. Definitely. Thank you
1: very much, Chris. I hope, as Chris mentioned, you got some interesting ideas out of this. I think these ideas are great and have great returns for the relatively small effort required to start taking action. Let me know your thoughts on how you're handling cognitive biases and if you'll be using any of Chris's suggestions. Now, this has been episode number 107 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. You can find notes for this episode at secretsofpm.com 107, including many links to all kinds of resources Chris and I mentioned. This is a fascinating area, and I'm sure you'll find some information in those links that you'll be able to apply right away. You can also leave a comment or complaint on that show page or connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.